Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live. I'm your host, Tony Didi, and I'm pleased to be joining you from my professional home at Rutgers University. We broadcast on the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune in to Student Affairs Live along with my brilliant friend and co-host, Heather Shea, Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our guests, but we can't do that without first giving a shout out to the sponsors that make Student Affairs Live possible. Hired Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. An accessible site is a highly usable site for everyone. It's time to make it a priority. M. Stoner's Accessibility Checkup provides actionable information to help your website comply with legal requirements and improve site performance for seven major user characteristics. Interested in learning more? or tweeting out a link now. This broadcast is also sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators International. Support for Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways ACPA provides innovative professional development. Visit myacpa.org to discover additional personal and professional development opportunities. I want to take a moment now to thank Mallory Bauer and Kate Zulo, who are helping to monitor the back channel and forwarding to me your best content and questions from the Twitterverse. Also want to give a shout out to Marilyn Mackis and Mimi Collins from the National Association of College Employers for helping me assemble this, this really rock star uh, group of, of panelists here today. Uh, very fortunate and, and, and happy to have you all here. And finally, I am very honored to have everyone join us. Lisa Hinckley, Daniel Black, Manny Contamanalist, Gary Allen Miller, and Trudy Seinfeld. Sorry, did I, did I just uh, trounce on your name? You can fix it for me, please. <laughs> That's close enough. Right. <laughs> Took me so, until about the third grade, Tony, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about my last name, how much uh, teasing I got. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so we're going to have everyone introduce themselves. We're going to have a good time here today, hopefully learn a lot together. Uh, I can see we have a really big crowd here listening in on the live broadcast, so I'm excited. If you're tuning in right now, please share with your friends on social media so they can join the conversation. Uh, we're going to start from left to right on my screen and have you introduce ourselves. We'll start with Dan. Could you tell us your current role and share with us the one piece of career advice you wish you had followed when you were younger? Yeah. So uh, hi, everyone. I'm Dan Black. Thank you for the intro, Tony. Uh, I am currently the global recruiting leader for EY, formerly known as Ernst & Young, so responsible for all hires uh, uh, around the world at all levels. Been doing that job for all of 19 days. Um, <laughs> led, led, <Amer> led recruiting in the Americas for EY prior to that. Um, the one piece of advice I wish I would have gotten was not to, um, not to be so narrow in my search. If you would have told me when I was a young man that I'd be leading a recruiting function across uh, six continents, I probably would have laughed in your face. So um, <laughs> having an open mind to new and different opportunities and not being so laser focused would, would probably be my best piece. Excellent. All right, on to you, Gary. Right, I'm uh, Gary Miller. I'm currently Director of University Career Services here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, in terms of the advice I would have uh, wanted to receive when I was younger, I was a first-generation college student. And I think uh, I was sort of stereotypically not knowing uh, what I didn't know, right? And so I think the advice that I would give to myself is that there's a whole host of people who want to be in your corner and, um, and understanding how to tap into those folks, um, not just career services people, but recognizing you've got lots and lots of folks that want you to be successful. That by itself is a hard concept for folks to grasp. So I think that would be my piece of advice. Don't overlook those folks. Excellent. All right, Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa Hinckley. I'm the Associate Vice President for Career and Professional Development at Lake Forest College. I'm a member of the President's senior staff team and really lead our institutional efforts to integrate career preparation across the curriculum. The um, piece of advice that I wish I would have taken when I, when I was a student was to take more business classes. All of those, uh, you know, politics classes and then graduate school and student affairs administration were all lovely, but um, higher education is a business and, um, you know, I've had to teach myself a lot. Excellent. All right. Manny and I apologize for <laughs> up your name. Can you no worries, no worries, Tony. My name is Manny Contaminolis, and I lead uh, career services and cooperative education at the Rochester Institute of Technology in my role as a senior associate vice president. The one piece which I had followed was to, you know, the, the, you know when they used to say uh, years ago, go west, young man? 
Yeah. Uh, the one, the one piece of advice I always got was go abroad, young man. Leave the U.S. You know, open up your eyes. Um, and I wish I had done that because um, you know now we realize how really truly global the world is and how global talent is. And um, that is something I really wish I would have done much earlier uh, in my career. Fantastic. All right, Trudy, you're up. Hi, so I'm Trudy Steinfeld, and most recently, actually about the same amount of time, days as Dan, I've transitioned <laughs> to being an early careers talent and workplace consultant, and, um, but I'm still transitioning out of my role at a great institution, NYU, where I was the associate vice president leading global career development across all of our sites as well as our main campus in New York. And I guess the one piece of advice I wish um, that I had followed is that my Aunt Ruthie told me to go to law school and not to let anything stop me. And I think I'm a little older than um, some of you on the screen. And I think that in those days, women really thought about career choice in a different way. And law school just seemed something that was such a reach for, like Gary, a first-generation college student. But So I think the bottom line is you should follow your dreams, whatever it is, and don't let anyone tell you no. There you go. I think we should write a book on, on <laughs> yourself. Right. All right, so the title of this episode is Trends in Career Development. So let's start off with that question. What, so we'll go back to you, Dan. What is the one career development trend that you're paying close attention to this year? And I recognize that your answer may be a little different than career development given your role. Yeah, this is a little bit of a which one of these is not like the others, right? Um, <laughs> but I do, um, you know, having been a past president of, of NACE and, and working so closely with, you know, people on the phone and, and career services across uh, the U.S. and, and, and abroad, I, th I think a big trend I'm seeing of late, you know, certainly the last six months, but even 12 to 18, um, is alternatives with respect to um, job search, um, to a lesser extent, job readiness. There's other ways that, and I'll tell you at EY, um, that, that candidates and students are finding employers, finding employment, um, you know, whether that's technology, there's artificial intelligence, networking and social. Um, lots of, it seems like there's a new batch of those kind of popping up every single day. Um, as an employer, it certainly has been useful for, for us uh, to be able to, to tap into some of those resources and reach some students we might not otherwise come across um, on some of our college campuses. Um, and a good 10% of our hires at the firm in the Americas are people that we've never uh, physically met on a campus. We've met them through other means. That said, I, I will say that um, there's definitely been a, a, a difference. There's something to be said for all of, of the, the suite of offerings uh, that a student can avail themselves of within a career services environment uh, or career development environment with a focus on development, um, whether it's you know a career readiness, interview readiness, um, information about employers, making connections that might otherwise be difficult. If you've ever tried to make a connection with someone uh, online cold, you know what I'm talking about. So I think you know while there's lots of different ways to, to, to start a job search and to think about um, a career as a student, um, if you do uh, have a, a career service, a career development opportunity or, or a, a, an established group on your campus, that, that, is, that is still to me, um, yeah, that's a home run. It's, it's, a, it's a free resource in essence uh, to get yourself in front of what is generally speaking a very wide swath uh, of employment opportunities. Great, all right. Gary, you're the trend you're you're paying attention, tuning into this year. Yeah, I think if we look at our connections and our relationships with um, the academic affairs side of our institutions, I think this is an important one, and it's coming up in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the NACE benchmarking data still shows that most of our offices are connected to student affairs, but we have seen changes there, and a lot of those changes, I think, have been related to the elevation of career services that we've seen over the past half dozen years or so. And in many cases, you have individuals who, if not reporting directly to a provost or a president, are getting elevated to sort of the same level within the organization. So that connectivity, uh, I think, is a really important trend, not just structurally how it impacts us, but also how we think about how we're connecting with students. I think for too long, it's been the case that career services 
um, has been sort of an optional uh, route for students. And students come into higher education knowing they have academic commitments that they have to follow through with. They know there's a curriculum that they need to follow. And I think increasingly what we want to see is how can we make a parallel set of expectations for our students as it relates to their career development. Um, so that connectivity with academic affairs becomes essential not only for the major connections to our, you know, skill development and, and pathwaying into different industries, but also just our place in their experience uh, in, the, in the environment. Fantastic. All right, Lisa, you're up. So I'm really paying attention to what's happening in the labor market right now. I mean, there are projections that 40% of jobs that exist today aren't going to exist maybe 15 years from now. And, you know, we've got students here, you know, traditional um, undergraduate students that are going to be here for four years, it doesn't take that many cycles before we're to 15 years. And I think that that has its own implications for the Career Center, how we organize the Career Center, how we keep track of those trends. So we've made some, some shifts here in um, really organizing around more of an industry-centric approach. So we've got five career pathways, and that lets me put people in areas of expertise that they can also be tracking this, these technology trends by field more closely. That, that brings up a, an interesting point and, and hopefully we'll get to it later on in the episode. So someone please revisit it if, if it doesn't come up. And, and that's, are we communicating back to the faculty what employers mm. are, are looking for? All right, Manny, you're up. Yeah, so I've been, I'm really, really fascinated with the future of assessment and the role that's going to increasingly play uh, in the work that we do. Uh, not that this is a new concept. We've been assessing and evaluating things for a while, but, um, you know, the first destination standards that NACE established um, for the first time kind of set this bigger structure of, of gathering, analyzing, and articulating uh, data relative to first destination outcomes. But that was really just the tip of this wave that's kind of sweeping over higher education in general, but certainly in the career services world. And that is uh, informed decision-making. In other words, uh, how are we evaluating our efforts? How are we making decisions that are based on data and our analysis of that data? Um, and today we have tools that were not readily available to us in the past. We have more practitioners who are more comfortable uh, and interested in utilizing statistical tools and data visualization tools in a way that I think opens up some amazing doors for us. But my interest is not only just on the career services side, but it's also um, an interest in how employers are assessing candidates. So I'm thinking about assessment very, very broadly. You know, I see the future uh, as, you know, about skills, not schools, about competencies, not curricula. So I think that as the employer community begins to get more and more sophisticated in how they're um, assessing candidates, what skills and competencies that uh, they're looking for, I think that's going to translate into the work that we're doing. And you see that a little bit now, even at some colleges and universities that are much more competency focused. In other words, they're looking at not just a particular uh, sequence of courses, but trying to better understand what are these competencies that are needed, and NACE is playing a role in helping with that, clearly. Uh, but also, how can we develop these competencies? How can we map them to things that we're doing, but also how can we focus on them to better make help employers make those matches for long-term success? Excellent. All right, Trudy, you're up. Hi, I've really been um, interested in paying close attention to the impact of the number of international students that are studying, uh, certainly on campuses in the US, um, many of them at the graduate level. And I think um, until recently, so many of them were coming for a great education, but very much motivated by getting a great career and an internship or some other experiential education opportunity Why they were here those opportunities are more challenging. So first is that I think career centers across the country, and this is in large, medium, small institutions, public and private, have really gotten slammed by the number of international students who are now very much seeking out services. And if you look at any of the national data um, on international students, it really takes more time 
to work with them to introduce the American style job search and obviously there's many other hoops and obstacles that they're going to need to jump through, uh, whether they can win that visa lottery, whether the kind of academic training they have allows them to have an internship while they're here studying. And I think it's really challenged career offices to really think differently in how they're going to support those students. Now I also think that employers are also equally challenged. They see great student talent. They might be from fill-in-the-blank um, you know, country, and they really want to make those hires, but whether the business that they're in or whether the difficulty in obtaining visas uh, for these students make it very, very challenging. And I also think um, that there is you know, a lot of consternation on college campuses um, to really how do we best support those students. And I think for some reason, in addition to the International Foreign Student Offices, the career office seems to be front and center in that type of um, discussion. And I think that there's going to continue to be, especially with the economic and political conditions that we now find ourselves in, really big challenges to serving those students well. Cool. So, so we've gotten our first question on, on Twitter from Mika Karakari. Uh, she's a Cincinnati native, an essay doc at um, Miami of Ohio, and she asks, given the current trends in career services departments, are, are career services departments becoming more industry focused? If not, why not? And how can this shift benefit students? So anyone can jump in on that one. <laughs> well, I think that, yeah, go ahead, maybe, maybe Lisa, why don't you kick this off because you're doing some interesting things. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's certainly with the specialization that's happening across the labor market, I think we're seeing it in career centers. We have to get more specialized at our work. It's not sufficient to just say, oh, I, I help students with their early career development. Someone else in the office helps with internships. Someone else helps with, with job search or graduate school. There has to be a continuum across that that whole experience. And Gary mentioned earlier that um, you know they're they're looking more at their institution even at how um, you know how do they they make those connections with the academic side. The way that um, we've chosen to do it at Lake Forest, I'd mentioned the career pathways is in a way creating a new system that sits a little bit more almost on top of the academic experience or alongside of the academic experience. So the, the five career pathways that we have are business and finance, creative arts, science and healthcare, law and public service, and the build your own. So there's, there's home for, actual, for absolutely everyone in those pathways, but those pathways are also not your traditional just sort of service delivery kinds of things. My, my first role in, in the field was, um, you know, a college-based position where I had a, a field sort of expertise, expertise in communication arts and sciences. But the, the big difference in what we're doing at Lake Forest and the kind of this era of industry-specific um, advising is looking more at how do we create communities. It's not enough for me to have a really talented team I need to have a team who can mobilize students, faculty, staff, alumni, trustees, friends of the college, you know, employers that we put in that, that bucket of the friends who aren't, don't fall in all of those other categories. I mean, there really needs to be a way that we're getting students connected to the world. They, they can Google anything. Um, so if we're not really helping them to cut through the clutter and to navigate their way through these increasingly specialized fields and labor markets, I, I think the career center really has to be careful. You know, a career center needs to own their expertise and dig in enough to the industry information that they can be seen as experts. Yeah, Tony, just if I could, if I could piggyback on top of that, one of the things I would say, and, and you know, uh, you know, Manny and, and Trudy, I, I, I know this is being done, even if career services um, you know, has a, a broad swath, the offerings for career services, whether it's, um, you know, more targeted career fairs or, um, hey, here's a here's a session on building your resume toward a business uh, interview. Right. You know, so so even if the career services tends to, to offer, a, again, a broad array of, of, of you know, advice to, to a large number of students, I think um, making some specific inroads with employers to say, 
here's how we're targeting those people that you're likely going to want to be in front of, you know, more so than anyone else. Uh, very attractive to an employer for sure. I can t I can speak from experience. Yeah. And if Tony, I could chime in, point. if I could, no, go ahead, Gary. Yeah, very quickly. I just want to two two ideas that I think spring from what we just heard from. Lisa and Dan, um, I think we do have to grapple with the reality that when you're talking to everybody, you're talking to nobody, mm. um, that we live in an era of customization. We expect that in our lives now. When we log on to Amazon, it knows what we bought last and it's thinking probably what we're going to buy next. And that's the world in which we live. But the, the corollary to that, or maybe the flip side of that coin that I think we will all struggle with is... Um, how much specialization can you do at scale, uh, at the scales that we have? Um, and simultaneously, given the acknowledgement uh, that the labor market does change quickly, what downsides come with aligning with industries when there's so much shifting and change among industries themselves? And that will be, I think, a challenge for us to tackle. One, one point I wanted to add is that, uh, and this touches on what Lisa said earlier about the kind of over-specialization of roles in career services. and. Uh, you know, I think one one of the other kind of underlying cultural changes that speak to this point, I, they certainly happen at NYU, certainly happen at RIT, certainly happen in a number of institutions across the country, is um, everybody interacts with employers. It doesn't matter what your role is, but the old days of I'm a career counselor, I only talk to students, and I'm an employer relations person and I only talk to employers, is an outdated, ineffective model. When you're counseling someone, if you don't have that, that gravitas, that integrity of, of, having, of knowing people in industry, of talking to recruiters when they're on campus, of visiting employer work sites, of really kind of generating that network that you can draw on as needed, but that gives you as an individual advisor that integrity, that, that ability to work with a student far more comprehensively. I think that's a really a key cultural shift, and I think it's a good one. The idea of account management, uh, the idea of being able to support employers directly based on their needs, and the idea that you could walk in an office and you know what, these people just don't sit on campus. They know what's going on out there, not just in terms of reading reports, but knowing, visiting work sites, understanding what employers have particular interests in a certain kind of institution or a certain kind of academic program. I think that's going to be increasingly a real a differentiator between highly effective offices and those that will struggle more. And I'll just say lastly, very briefly, um, that I think that career services organization is at least ones that are really establishing themselves with thought leadership are the ones that can inform the academics, the faculty, and as well as their students, but a variety of stakeholders of what is going on in industry. What are the trends? What are the competencies? What are the skills? And that just makes them seem as more credible and gives them, again, the word gravitas was used, uh, more gravitas and more weight on campus. And by the way, when you're a career center fighting for resources, if you can establish that you are aware of what industry is looking for in trends, and that you can help inform your institution, advance some of the things that they're trying to offer students, it puts you in a really good position. So re somewhat related to, to what you were just discussing, Matt Henderson from Georgia State U asked, does career services have an image problem in higher ed? Is there a best way to overcome the, quote, you do more than resume syndrome? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I guess I would just say that, you know, one of the hard, the hardest things to do is just like to it, paint the entire hiring community in some broad brush strokes uh, that would be impossible and, and ineffective to do. The same is true of career services. Frankly, the way career services is viewed, what their mission and, and tasked, how they're resourced, often is very uh, institutionally idiosyncratic or at least you could look at certain sectors. So the world for community colleges, for example, for um, traditional liberal arts universities, the world for large research one universities are completely different universes, often, when it comes to career services. So I don't think that there's one way to present it or one way that actually captures it, but I do believe it would be fair to say that in certain institutions and in certain sectors of higher education, boy, oh boy, you know, institutions are investing heavily in career services. And they see 
that as essential to student satisfaction, to making their alumni and other stakeholders happy, and at other institutions, unfortunately, and Trudy mentioned this kind of competition for resources. Boy, there are a lot of our colleagues at a lot of campuses across this country that are really, really struggling. And that lack of resources limits what they can do. Uh, it sets a cap, if you will, or a ceiling. And then they're making hard choices. So when people look for innovation and new programs, boy, those offices and those directors and staffs are really, really challenged to take that next step when they're, you know, uh, um, you know, neck deep in just managing the day-to-day -day kinds of uh, questions that students have. If I could piggyback, first of all, Matt, shout out, Georgia State alum. Second, I'm, I'm reminded of your question reminds me of that meme that was going around a few years ago that was like what my friends think I do, what my parents think I do, what I think I do. You know, there's a lot of different narratives about what we do. And some of it, I think uh, every office in higher ed probably has its fear of being stereotyped. Right. Um, I think the way we push back against this is making sure that we are collecting the right data to tell the right stories. Um, and so if you're not collecting data that shows how you positively impact the student experience, not just in first destination realm, but also with their interactions with your office, what they learned, um, the way you helped retain them, so on and so forth, you have to have that data to help you tell that story. And qualitative data is perfectly valid as well. But if you don't have that and you're just running around saying, but we're not the resume people, it's easy to, <laughs> it's easy to discount that, right? Um, but if you say, we do resumes, yes, absolutely. Help, helping students tell their story is a big part of what we do, but we impact them in ways X, Y, Z that are really important to their retention and their success here. That to me is the key. So speaking of resumes, are, are resumes still relevant today with the, with the introduction of LinkedIn? Do we still need to focus in on resumes? Uh, I'd like to, yes. And, and, <laughs> and the reason is, 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 is a very simple one, is that you may learn about your job. Uh, Dan introduced a number of technologies, a number of networking situations, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to submit that resume to an applicant tracking system. And you know, it's not that if an employer you know, picks out that resume because they've done a keyword search and the recruiters put in all kinds of things and the algorithm has done its thing, it's not that they're going to not Google the person, look at their LinkedIn profile, do a lot of other research on them before they invite them in for an interview, but the resume is going to really, I think, go to you know, the core, uh, again, of how recruiters are selecting students. And it, 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 you know, Dan is shaking his head because I, I <laughs> think that it's, and, and anyone who thinks that they don't need a resume anymore or they think it needs to look all cute, they're going to be making a big mistake because they're not going to get found. But Dan, you look like you wanted to. Yeah, no, I, I would. I totally agree. You know, it's 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 still the the the, the common denominator, the universal. Um, you know, as much as there's lots of technologies and companies and social sites that that want to be the, the single go-to place for for that kind of information about a potential applicant or prospect. And the fact of the matter is, people have preferences, and they don't. You know, they don't necessarily. This one wants to be on LinkedIn. This one wants to be on. You know, fill in the blank on another site, social or not. Um, and the resume is still kind of the common denominator. And by the way, this is not. Um, you know, endemic just to the U.S. This is you right. know, kind of around the world with you know, resume, CV, what have you. Um, I think I, I would say that there are uh, you know the enhancements. If you have an opportunity to enhance your resume in some way, in other words, you know, there's lots of different kind of um, ways that you can showcase your skills in addition to the resume. Um, whether that be through the social profiles that that Trudy mentioned, or there's actually. Um, uh, other technologies that you can participate in that will help to showcase some of your work, cases you've done, you know, projects and papers you've worked on, those kinds of things, that's great. But the resume, I think, is still, uh, for, for the foreseeable, um, kind of that, that, that one thing that we got to make sure you have uh, telling the right story about yourself. Uh, I would just add that, I think for me, whenever I think about it, I say the, res the, the resume is necessary, it's just no longer sufficient. Right. You know, if you want to be an effective job seeker, you need to have a resume. And as a matter of fact, you need to have several versions of your resume. Right. But that aside, <laughs> to Dan's point, you know, uh, there are an increasing number of platforms like Behance and Portfolium and new enterprise systems that are really kind of emphasizing not the traditional resume, but the idea of a portfolio the idea of being able to articulate 
um, your experiences, give evidence of those, link that portfolio to examples of the work that you're doing. I think you're going to see more and more of that. But boy, I don't think any time in the near term are those things going to take the place of at least what we come to understand in broad terms as a resume. I think all of us are focused on helping students tell their story, their best story, in whatever medium makes sense. Um, but to Dan's point earlier, I do think we're talking about, um, you know, the resume is the key that opens the door and maybe all these social profiles and, and portfolios and stuff are the furniture once you get in the room. Um, you know, you could still be on the outside banging the door, but if you don't have that key, uh, you may never get in to show off your other stuff. And also, uh, Georgia State is the Panthers, not the Blue Raiders. They're totally going to take away my alumni card. <laughs> I conflated my alumni mascot with my graduate degree. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I know we've got professionals that are trying to help students uh, navigate social spaces, and they're also potentially looking for jobs. So regarding LinkedIn, what is it that makes someone stand out? Are things like endorsements and number of connections and, and engagement on feeds, are, are those important aspects of a LinkedIn profile? I just want to say one thing very quickly about this, because I think there's a number of things. And, and first of all, there's, there's some just common sense things that especially early talent doesn't do, which you need a headshot. You can't have the shadow. Two, uh, which many people have. Oh. That's, <laughs> That's so looks like your former profile, Dan. Um, the, first, the other thing that I would just say, and then I'll, I know everybody else has something to contribute to this, is that right under your name, what you want to do, it's not only, you should, if you're a student looking for a job off of campus, uh, your first full-time gig, you don't want to have graduating student you know, seeking this. You really want to have the field and competencies showing up in that top line under your name on your profile and some of those important skills and some of them a little aspirational because that's how employers are going to find you and other professionals. Cool. All right. So re related to Gary started to bring this up and, and, and when I went to school, I remember seeing jobs posted you know, kind of tacked up, up on a bulletin board in the residence halls or on bus stops. And now it has evolved, right? Now we're using technology to connect employers to, to our students. In fact, Sarah Dell from Wentworth asked, mm -hmm. what are the innovative ways that employers and schools are supporting and interacting with students on campus? Mm -hmm. Gary, you want to feel that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think the truth of the matter is there isn't one answer, right? Because it's multi-channel, it's multi-technology, it's in-person, it's digital, it's, it's on campus, it's off campus. And so uh, I think the challenge that we as career services professionals and our colleagues on the college recruiting side of the house deal with is it's not really about what... Um, you know, what's the best technology for me to use? It's all context, right? So where are the students that I want to connect with or from the other side, where are the employers that I want to connect with and what is that pathway? So obviously for career services folks, we all have our various, um, you know, career services management platforms, whether it's Simplicity or Handshake or CSO or whatever. And that's always going to be a powerful tool because you know there's a good relationship there. But we also know realistically those connections can come in a million different places, whether those digital or not. So I don't think there's a pat answer. I think it falls to, to people on both sides of this connective transaction to figure out what is the right channel for the context that I'm seeking today. And that's maybe just like a, a wordy way to dodge the question, and I'm willing to own that. <laughs> but I think it's true. All right. So Manny, I'm going to direct this next one to yeah. you. You know, a lot of schools are in the midst of new student orientation right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I think folks are often uh, unsure as when we should actually introduce career development mm -hmm. into the, the student experience. So on a continuum from new student orientation to graduation and beyond into alumni status, when and how frequently should career services be introduced and utilized by students? Oh, the simple answer is early and often. Okay. 
But I do think that, you know, the strategies most universities are employing is, you know, recognizing that there's like a time action triad, right? In other words, do people will take action when they're ready to take action, when it makes sense for them given where they are at a particular point in time in their life. So I, the, the idea, I think, the underlying principle, perhaps is a better way to put it, is to introduce students early. Make sure that they understand there are services to help them. Make sure that they understand thinking about uh, a career or thinking about what they want to do, what they want to pursue uh, in their life is an ongoing process. And that thinking about it is okay. It doesn't just occur in a vacuum. Dialoguing with people about it is okay. And I think what most institutions are trying to do in some way, shape or form is build a kind of culture, an institutional culture around careers, where it's not just the responsibility of career services or quite honestly, faculty, but um, academic advisors, other student uh, services professionals, uh, alumni who are engaged, employer partners, even trustees. So this idea of kind of mapping that out, which in many ways is not like one single roadmap that says this is what you do first year, this is what you do second year, third and fourth, uh, but rather a lot of that has to do with ability so students can experiment, explore, look at different things through experiential learning or internship programs, but most importantly to recognize that when a student says, I want to go into software engineering, as an example, or a student who says, I want to go into accounting or nursing, or a student who says, I think I want to do, start my own business. Those pathways can be significantly different. How you prepare for them, how you think about them, when you take action. So I think one of the big trends is helping students early on to understand there are services available. That's, that's really critical to start to build this, cult this culture of ask questions, explore, think about this, think about your courses and what they mean, think about your experiences and what they mean. And I think that kind of culture change really allows the student to kind of embark on that early and go through that whole college career surrounded by people who are thinking about and sensitive to that and encouraging and sometimes nudging them, sometimes pushing them to think about things and take action. I think there, there's an idea that people believe thinking about your career has to be hard work, mm. but there are a number of career centers around the country and at, at Lake Forest were one of them that we start at orientation with helping students understand how to play around career. Mm -hmm. So we um, do an activity with our Center for Chicago programs in which we pull students together, we get them to start thinking about what are you bringing with you, the, the experiences, the interests, what are you really excited about? And what are some of the ways those might play, play out here? And we get them networking with each other really at orientation. We have two hours as part of orientation where we've got them getting together in groups, talking about their values, and then building structures out of, you know, this is part of the silly fun part, um, boxes and tape and markers and all kinds of things where they're actually starting to express themselves to their peers who we know long-term are going to become some of their most important net members of their network after graduation. But we start in a playful way. And I don't care if they remember anything else from that time that we have with them other than, hey, career stuff doesn't have to be hard and scary. And the career center staff are actually kind of cool. Like I could spend some time with them. I could stop by and see them. I, yeah, I know there are others that do uh, Lego competitions and all kinds of things as, as part of those first few weeks, but we've found a lot of success in that with our students to build that culture early. I, I know Mallory Bowers on the back channel. I hope you're quoting um, that career services professionals can be cool. So, so Dan, the mm -hmm. next question, next question is to you. So, Relative to, to what folks have just discussed, how should students best represent their co-curricular, I know their experiences, I know a lot of folks do a, a student involvement transcript or something similar. What, how can they do that in a way that employers can understand and, and translate that into skills and competencies uh, that make sense for employers? Yeah, you know, I think there's, 
uh, for us, and we talk about it, like uh, there's a three pronged approach. Number one is on the resume itself. Um, all too often, you know, there's some standard resume format that someone's given that says, "Thou shalt put this first, and that second, and this third. And maybe your most important contribution to, you know, in, in your academic career was to a student club that you were the president of for five years, but that's buried at the bottom of your paper. So, so bring that up, call out accomplishments, not just you know either memberships or positions held and that uh, that sparked a lot of good conversations so that's part one you know off the resume is what we talked about earlier some additional technology whether it's a you know to your point a co-curricular transcript um, a lot of technology out there um, there are different universities that I've been to where um, they have uh, either a, a student slip sheet or some other data sheet that the employer might might uh, provide that gives you the opportunity to expound on things that are that are beyond the academic um, take advantage of them. I've seen some of these things that look, you know, you know, pitifully and woefully undercompleted, um, and you really miss an opportunity to sell your best self if that's a big part of who you are. Um, and the last thing is is through, you know, kind of live interaction with the employer. Um, I, I can't overstate how important it is to participate in. You know, whether it's the meet and greets, we do a lot of teamwork and team building events now. We have leadership programs. There's a whole host of things at which you can really showcase some of those skills because your resume is your GPA. You know, it's it's a number, um, but if you can come and, and interact with an employer, and and via that you know kind of mechanism, show them how great you are interacting with people of diverse backgrounds or or how resilient you are. There, there's there's almost no better way to showcase it than to have someone see it and experience it live. And I, I think um, you know, and, and it, the a lot of students still do this. It's like, let me drop my resume in the proverbial slots, you know, 15 or 20 of them. Let's see what hits I get. Um, I think it's much more important to get out and pound the pavement um, to the extent that you have the opportunity to do so, because then you can really showcase some of those skills that you've learned outside of pure academics, um, you know, to the employer directly. So per perhaps this is industry specific, but you're, you could probably answer this because you're not in higher ed anymore. How, how important <laughs> is the GPA? Oh, um, well, you know, it depends on the employer. And, and you're right, it is industry specific. I will tell you that um, there still is a, a decent school of thought uh, that says if you are a full-time student, um, that is your full-time job, your GPA is some indicator of how well you're performing at your full-time job. Now, there's a whole host of caveats, you know, uh, grade curving and, and you know, and, and uh, uh, whether it was in your major or not, there's a whole host of things that you can do and say. Um, if, at the end of the day, what I tell students is if I am deciding between two candidates and I only have one slot and they are absolutely identical in every single way, personality, competency, et cetera, and one has a 4.0 and one has a 2.0, I'm going for the four. So, you know, for... So, you know, it's not the end-all be-all, but it certainly is something that most employers I interact with at least consider as part of, of the, the assessment process. Tony, can I build quickly off something that, that Dan said earlier at the beginning of the initial question about that representation piece? Um, I think we as universities do a really good job of encouraging students to do what we don't do a good job of is encouraging students to make meaning and we give them spaces to do a lot and we don't give them spaces to make meaning a lot. So it's harder for them sometimes to effectively convey that to the employer because they haven't give themselves, given themselves the space to say, yeah, I did all these things, but what do they mean to me? And that's really the key, I think, to then turning around and sharing it with someone like Dan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to tell the viewers, uh, thank you. There are so many good questions out there. Um, some of them, many of them, many uh, probably better than mine. We're gonna. I think we're gonna have to do a, a second round of this because there's no way we're gonna get all these questions in over the course of the next 15 minutes. So I really appreciate all the engagement uh, in in this episode and and also on the back channel here today, Trudy. Uh, regarding articulating skills. In, Say a student has an experience in a student organization or in a fraternity or sorority or in a programming board or, or even a, an on-campus um, position working in a student union, for instance. How can non-career services professionals assist in this challenge of helping them articulate their skills? Um, you know, one of the things that I think all of us would probably agree about is that career services is 
everyone's business on campus. Um, it's, it really needs to become, and that's, that's a sea change, and not every institution has embraced it, but I think everyone who is concerned with outcomes for students and making sure that students make that bridge to the, you know, their, their first job out of school really needs to be concerned. And you know, certainly in the student affairs landscape, as well as other parts of higher education, people are very concerned with learning outcomes. But having students talk about, you know, Gary mentioned storytelling, about their hard and soft skills and competencies in a way that gives meaning and can convey to an employer is everyone's business. And I actually think campus jobs, and I oversaw a very one of the largest student employment programs, and one of the things we really tried to do is make everyone on campus understand that the ideal is let that student get hired. You mentor them, you work with them, you give them opportunities to build and grow um, and enhance their skills, and then be able to take those and leave the institution actually probably very early into an internship or other kind of career-related part-time opportunity that again will again advance what they're trying to do after college. And I think sometimes that not everyone in higher ed really has embraced that, but that is where I think things need to be going and I think innovative institutions are doing it. And I just want to also say um, that a lot of the skills, um, somebody on this panel used the term, we hire GSPs. Who was that? He didn't have uh, hair on his head, so it's one of three. That doesn't narrow it down. Um, one of three. And it was Dan years ago who said, we hire, you know, at the end of the day, we hire good, smart people. So how do, does good, smart people, or, you know, how does that translate in employer speak? And if you look at some of the skills, um, predictive actually now, that employers are really seeking, it's things, um, grit and resiliency, curiosity, problem solving, teamwork, ownership or accountability of, of doing that. And students every single day have experiences, whether it was in a class, an internship, something they navigated at home, a roommate problem, if they were to study abroad, doing something in another language, um, really in, in investigating or joining an organization that really looks interesting to them. And Good career coaching, I just do want to bring it back to the career office, can help students tease that out of them and get them to be able to not be modest or shy about introducing that to an employer. Because when any employer is interviewing a student, whether it's on campus or off, for a position, they are really looking for those examples that demonstrate some of those really important competencies. And students need to be coached by the career services, their faculty, club advisors, supervisors on campus jobs, to really how to articulate that effectively by example that demonstrates those core skills. So Manny, this next question for you, a few, can you provide a few examples of the partnerships beyond you know, obvious academic departments that might be in important for career development departments to be successful. Yeah, certainly half of the folks watching today are probably dedicated career services professionals, but the other half is probably a wide range of student affairs or higher education professionals. Sure. Well, I mean, there's no question uh, career services cannot be successful in a vacuum. You have to have partnerships. They're the ones that most obviously come to mind for people, and that is you know, with um, hiring organizations, those are among your key partners. But typically when people are, are, are trying to establish these things, it's often sometimes more challenging internally than it is externally. Mm -hmm. There are trustees, there are alumni, there are corporate folks who are willing and able and want to help and engage. But internally, the partnerships are increasingly key. Uh, you mentioned faculty. We'll skip over those for a minute to focus on some of the areas that I think are increasingly important, um, and they they run the gamut. I think first and foremost, there is the kind of development and alumni relations fundraising arm. The the fact that fundraising often touches on key alumni or corporations or organizations. Now corporate for example, is tied into some other nature of the relationship with the institution. So knowing 
you know, the alumni that development might be targeting uh, for fundraising purposes, seeing what those alumni, what their experiences were, understanding those, seeing how to leverage those alumni into other kinds of partnerships that support students um, is clearly, you know, one of the big, big areas. An area now, consistent with what I said earlier about assessment, is institutional research. More and more now, career services offices are working with institutional research to come up with assessment strategies, to work together on, uh, you know, first destination outcomes information, um, as well as tracking alumni and so forth. I think a third area which is getting a lot of attention right now are research relations. Faculty who have um, contacts either through research arrangements, consulting uh, assignments with corporations, with other entities that potentially could come, could become bigger, broader partners with, with the university. So I think the whole idea increasingly now is thinking university-wide. What can universities do for the outside world? Talent, continuing education and training, um, research, uh, fundraising, and other kinds of partnership uh, development. How can we look at those external partnerships in a broader comprehensive way? That's what many employers are looking for. That's what most universities are. And that demands that we're able to work with those other key providers wherever they may be uh, in the university setting. So what, one of my near to last questions uh, before we, we wrap up here today, and, and as I said, we've got so many good questions both uh, in the Twitterverse and still to get to today. I think we're going to have to, to schedule a second round here. What, what <laughs> advice might you have for someone who's in a broader student affairs field who might be interested in, in jumping into career services. How, how does one prepare for a career in career development? What kind of experience uh, are most valuable beyond generic higher ed classes? Well, I, I mean, I think this is, uh, to some extent, oh, I'm sorry, someone else is supposed to go. I, this wasn't no, no, a genuine no, no. question, was it? Fine. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it, to some extent, it, it's the kind of things that we tell students. Volunteer in the places that you want to be. If you're in another area of student affairs and you want to get involved with career services, whether it's your own institution or other institutions in the area, contact people in career services and say, I'm really excited about what you do. Can you tell me more? And are there ways that I can help? And then really listen to the ways that you can help. Don't just take your pet project and try to move it forward because you think it's awesome. Like you really, um, you know, if you're looking to make a transition into career services, I think it helps to start building those real relationships. And for anyone who's already in higher education, it's a lot easier to make friends in an office that's just around campus than it is to try to break in from the outside, though. I mean, similar advice holds true. Network, volunteer, gain real experiences. I would just also, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Trudy. Um, so one of the things I, I just want to say is that, um, you know, I, I really always hired by competency and enthusiasm and if they were a good fit for my operation and what degree they had, um, you know, I had people who had business degrees, accounting degrees, uh, public affairs, communications. Um, even I, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of folks who had been lawyers and didn't want to be attorneys anymore. And they brought some really interesting things. But what they all shared was a passion for this work. And I think Lisa's right. If you have a different degree or you're in a different office and you have an opportunity to gain some experience and 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 really demonstrate that you have the enthusiasm drive and passion for this field i think you will get people's attention and we're going through quite a transition you know some of the earlier comments about some of the competencies that we need to have in terms of marketers and communicators and really speaking to all of our stakeholders and also the analytics and, and data center uh, field that we now are, I think 
that's why there's room for a variety of different disciplines, but you have to be really able to talk the talk and convince career services leaders that you're really serious about this because in the old days, I'll just say people came from very traditional higher ed, student affairs, or maybe counseling psych backgrounds. And I think there's room for a lot of different folks in this field right now. In fact, I think that's what's most exciting about career services today is that there's a higher percentage of non-traditionally prepared people than ever before. And I think that's what, that's what really allows the paradigm shift, if you will, that we're going through. That's what expedites it. That's what allows us to think with like new, new vantage points, new optics, new concepts. Um, and I think that's what makes our work so exciting is people that will now become recruiters um, and make the shift that way. There are recruiters that work in career services. There's people from all sorts of different backgrounds, mm -hmm. people from alumni relations who get you know, interested in career services, people from fundraising, people from admissions, res life, uh, but also people from outside higher ed. And I think that's critical to our success long-term. In fact, these new ideas, new people, new ways of looking at things, that's critical. That's going to be part of our lifeblood going forward. All right. In the few minutes we have remaining left today, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Can each of you take a minute or less to share a few resources, websites, books, conferences, newsletters, associations, uh, so that the audience can help can continue to learn uh, about and explore some of the topics that we discussed here today? We'll, we'll go reverse order. Trudy, you can start us off. <laughs> uh, so I'll just give one plug-in uh, for Career Services Institute East. It's a conference going on uh, and the first Monday and Tuesday in August. At, it's going to be sponsored um, by George Mason University or held on that campus. It's a nonprofit by lots of great career services professionals and lots of great heads of employer services, including Dan, who's sitting there and, and some other great folks. Um, and then I would also just say that uh, uh, ERE uh, sends out um, some really interesting things in the recruiting space. And I think for those of you that are in career development, knowing what's going on in the, career, um, in the recruiting space is a really important daily part of the things that I read. Great. All right, Manny. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the Chronicle of Higher Education. <laughs> I think that so, so much we kind of take for granted that we're so focused on career services that we sometimes don't understand how our bigger industry works. Uh, and I think that's absolutely vital. I would certainly reinforce Trudy's point. I, I have everybody on my team, I encourage them to think like a recruiter, to follow recruiting trends. Um, another resource I follow closely is both out of Northeastern University and Georgetown University, the centers there on employment trends work. Um, I, I'm, I'm, an avid, I'm an avid follower of those kinds of trends. So I really encourage people in career services to think like a recruiter, that's one bucket, to really understand the industry of higher education that we're in and to really follow future trends. Fantastic, all right, Lisa. Well, we, we've talked about NACE, and I would expect that there are some people who aren't members of NACE yet but may start exploring, and I would definitely encourage them to really think about membership because there are a lot of resources that you only get access to as a member, so dig in there. There's a huge array of information along the lines of what, what Trudy and Manny have already been talking about. Um, with my role with the Collegiate Employment Research Institute, I you know, love watching what Phil Gardner is doing there and the kinds of work, especially with what's happening in the liberal arts, what employers are looking for, how students should be presenting themselves, the T-Summit um, work that happens each year describing really that students need breadth and depth. It's not an or. And I think too much of the time it seems like students um, need one or the other of those things. And one last item for anyone who's thinking about a career transition, I do have an opening in my office. So um, a resource is the Lake Forest College website where you can find a fabulous new opportunity to play in this area. Shameless plug. Shameless. Right. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> All right, Gary. Speaking of shameless plugs, Gary's up. <laughs> I have two openings. In <laughs> Very quickly, I want to mention three things, and only one of the three is further self-serving. So Kevin Grubb and I do the Career Services Slack chat that we post out on LinkedIn. I would love to see people engage in dialogues around that. 
Um, I think there's some really good content being created on the Career Leadership Collective site. Um, I think that's worth checking out. Um, but to Manny's point about broader connection with our field, uh, I think the AACNU does some really great stuff and the whole LEAP initiative, I think uh, we need to be more closely tied to some of that work. Um, so those would be my three. Oh, and, and just a side note, we had uh, Tia McNair from AACNU last month talking about high impact practices and, and she was a great, great guest. Yep. All right, Dan, you wanna bring it home? Yeah, way to be you know, last. Everyone said everything, but uh, I would say, you know, we talked about NACE. I would say the regional ACEs as well. Um, I like Career Crossroads. It tends to have a little bit more content around um, some experience hiring also, but a lot of good technology content that they put out, which uh, uh, recruitment technology, which I, I really, really like. Um, and then a little off the beaten path. I don't know if you've heard of Owler.com, O-W-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to follow specific companies and that you get a daily um, in mail or mail in your inbox uh, that gives you a description of what, what your competition is doing around a particular topic or in general. Really, it's something I read every single morning religiously. So um, O-W-L-E-R and you can set your own parameters around that. Fantastic. Well, I, I want to give a big thanks to everyone for joining us today. Uh, um, this had a tremendous response both on Twitter and, and viewership, live viewership for, for today's episode. Certainly is uh, an indication of the interest in this area. So when I invite you back, uh, I, I, I know that the president and president-elect of NASA are busy at a board meeting and were unable to join us here today, but uh, they certainly indicated that they'd love to join us in the future. So perhaps be an even larger panel next time we get together. Uh, Heather Shea will be back next week, actually, talking about how to use CAS standards to improve student affairs practice. And she's got a killer panel lined up as well for next week. I'll be back in August talking about the alignment of what faculty are teaching in student affairs programs and what the students are actually learning. It should be an interesting show. <laughs> and you can receive reminders about this and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to our iTunes podcast. I'm Tony Duty. Thanks for watching, everyone. I hope you make it a great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care.